Why are you going to mess with that? That sounds so good. I'm like, isn't that exactly what is, we do? Yes, isn't, isn't, that, that? isn't that great? Let yes, me ask you I something. Mean, How many experiments do we do in astronomy? It doesn't fit the scientific method at all. I think Western civilization peaked 300 years ago. Unfortunately, science was hijacked in the 18th century by the so-called enlightenment. And I think philosophically, science has been downhill ever since. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. So, what is science? If science is what we claim to know through observation and study, well, then how is it that science has such a long history of being wrong? T today, I want to ask an even, I think, more intriguing question that came to me a couple months ago. Is the scientific method that you learned in school, is that wrong? Now, before you dismiss the question, I want you to hear from my friend, Dr. Danny Faulkner. He taught both uh, physics and astronomy at the University of South Carolina, Lancaster, for a, man, I think it was like a quarter of a century. The dude is old, okay? Uh, he was the chair of math, science, uh, public health, uh, and nursing, uh, those divisions, and he's published more than a hundred papers in journals of astronomy and astrophysics. He now serves as a researcher, an author, and a speaker for Answers in Genesis, and he has appeared in several major creation films, including our very own Genesis Paradise Lost that is uh, playing in the 4D theater at the Creation Museum. So I, I guess it's kind of safe to say that Dr. Faulkner is a star who studies the stars. That's kind of the way it would go. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Danny Faulkner. Dr. Faulkner, thanks for hanging out with me today. Oh, Eric, it's good to be back. Thank you for inviting me back again. It's uh, always a delight to be here with you. You are just a fun guy to hang around. You're kind of like a mushroom, just a fun yeah. guy. I, I'm always intrigued, always fascinated, always learning. And then you're always pushing the envelope of what I had thought or what I thought was true. So I sometimes I wonder, is everybody else crazy or are you crazy? Like, wait, which one is it here when it comes to things of science? But you're honestly thinking pretty far ahead. Tell me, um, where, where are we at in science? You, you, you literally asked me, is it possible that the whole scientific method that we teach in school is wrong? And it, I just went, okay, that question hasn't come into my mind before. Uh, what? Take a step back and, and, and give us some understanding of why you would even ask that question. Okay. Well, we need to maybe <clears throat> define for people what science is. It's, uh, I would define it as being the study of the natural world using the five senses. And uh, when you say it's a natural world, it's opposed to the supernatural. So that puts a limitation on science. You can't probe God. You can't probe angels, things like that, uh, using science. <clears throat> and also, uh, uh, with the five senses, if it's not even if it's part of the natural world, if you can't detect it, interact with it, then you really can't uh, do science with it. Now, that's not to say that you can't use instruments, uh, things like meters to measure things, um, like electricity. I, I, I prefer, I mean, you can't see it, electricity, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can touch it, I don't recommend it. <clears throat> and so uh, it's better to use like ammeters and voltmeters and things like this. So, and um, so the study of the natural world with the five senses, that's the kind of definition of science I, I grew up with. Now, can you name some sciences for me? 
Sure, I think of biology, the science of life, astronomy, the study of stars, zoology, the study of animals, baromenology, the study of the original created kinds, geology, paleontology, anthropology, um, wifeology. I'm still working <laughs> on my degree in that oh, one. You, you, you left out two two biggies: chemistry and physics. Those are oh, yeah, more chemistry. Usually the big the big ones are biology, physics, chemistry, and sometimes astronomy, geology. I already said geology in there. So yeah, I got some ideas of what the sciences are. Okay. <clears throat> so how do we do science? And uh, you know, one one concern I have is that many times uh, in teaching things, we have to simplify things. You have to you can't talk about quantum mechanics with third graders, okay? And 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 you have to simplify things and get them down. And I've noticed over the years in many subjects, not just science but other subjects as well. We sometimes simplify things to the point of them being wrong. Wow. And, and you know, I, I found sometimes people misunderstand some of the things that I write. And and I, I write like, like two or three sentences describing something. And there are all sorts of caveats I never thought of or questions. And so if I really wanted to, to do it right, I'd, I'd spend like, uh, you know, eight or ten pages taking care of all the possible misunderstandings and different different <laughs> weird things. So we have to simplify things, but unfortunately when we simplify them, we oftentimes uh, simplify them to the point of being incorrect. And uh, that's what I want to look at with the scientific method. Again, they teach us in schools. You probably learned it growing up and this sort of stuff. Absolutely. I yeah. I was you. thinking, it, I was, I, when, I, when I talked to you about this, I was like, okay, I think I could still repeat you have a hypothesis, you observe something, have a hypothesis about why that happened. You uh, have to run tests to determine if your hypothesis is true. You uh, analyze your test and then you come to a conclusion. It seems there like that go. was the, did That's I get it right? basically it. You want to know, you okay. want to know something though? You know, when I learned about the scientific method, as you described Wait. it, about yeah. a decade after I graduated high school, you didn't learn that same method in high school that I learned. I did not. I learned about experiments and hypotheses, but not the. It was not a, this five or six step little rubric you went through. It was interesting that how that's changed. I think that was introduced in the curriculum in the seventies, and I graduated in, in nineteen seventy. <laughs> so I I, uh, I kind of miss, <laughs> missed all of that. So at any rate, uh, that's that's one of my concerns. But yeah, let's. Uh, I gave you a. I gave you a slide. Can you put that up for me? Yeah. Talk about the scientific method. Yes, and, uh, here we go. Will I be able to see it too when it goes up? Oh, it's one of the videos. Can you see that uh, other video? Oh, okay, down have? there. Okay. Well, the scientific yeah. method. Uh, you've got this idea. But one of the things they start off with usually is saying is that uh, you start off by observing some phenomenon. You go right. out and you and you notice uh, something in the sky dealing with astronomy, and you wonder about that, or you or you notice something about living or living critters, or about chemicals or whatever. You observe a phenomenon, and it rouses your curiosity. You want to know, okay, what's going on here? What caused that to happen? How did this happen? Those kind of questions. And you might do some preliminary study. We kind of skip that sometimes, but you you, you might want to read up on it and find out if if someone's already answered it to complete satisfaction. If not, then you've got a, a a good thing to go with here but if not if so then you're kind of done at that point unless you want to critique it or really go further into it so you observe a phenomenon and then the next step you would you put together you would uh, you would kind of develop a hypothesis which would uh we i learned about hypotheses in high school and a hypothesis is an educated guess is that they, they still teach that as being an educated guess today that's what I would. Yeah, that's how I learned it. Like, hey, based on what you know, why do you think this is happening or yeah. what do you think caused? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and sometimes people describe it as a cause and effect relationship. I don't know if it has to be like that, but it can be in some situations. So the hypothesis, uh, hypothesis, you know, it could be, um, uh, your hypothesis is that it rains on Tuesday, every Tuesday, you know, that's, that could be a hypothesis. If it's Tuesday, then uh, put an if then statement, if it's Tuesday, then it will be raining kind of a silly example, but that is, that is, you know, what we could do, develop that hypothesis. And of course, once you develop hypothesis, the next thing you want to do is you want to test that hypothesis. And this is uh, uh, usually what they tell you is they, they, they develop an experiment to do that. You say, if my hypothesis is correct, then I would, uh, I could go and do this, this test and see. So if I think if my hypothesis is, that, is it rains on Tuesdays, then, then I, okay, I'm going to go out on Tuesday and see if it rains. And if it rains, then then that kind of confirms my hypothesis. But if it doesn't rain, it disproves it, and we're kind of done at that point, aren't we? We can go back and modify the hypothesis or come up with a new one or something like this. But, you know, the, the neat thing is, and, and this is an interesting little point I wasn't planning on talking about today, but, um, you know, in, in, in science, we never can really prove something. In, okay. in the absolute sense that most people understand proof proof from deductive reasoning. So we don't use deductive reasoning. We use inductive reasoning. So when, when you say, if, if my hypothesis is if this, then that, and I, and I observe that, then there could be some other hypothesis. Like it could be, it could be raining on Wednesdays would, would also explain rain. Um, so, so you would have to uh, go with an alternative hypothesis at this point to kind of test these out. But which one is true? Which you probably never even thought of the correct one, if there is a correct one, even. So you never can be a hundred percent sure about these things. One example I've used is uh, you may have never seen a cow before, and you see a cow. Someone says this is a cow. Is what a cow looks like? And get an idea of cowness, and you notice the cow is brown. And later on, you next day you you see another cow, and after about ten or twenty cows, they're all brown. You say, hmm. I've got a hypothesis that all cows are brown. And how would you test that hypothesis? Well, go out looking for more cows and keep looking. But how many brown cows would you have to see to know that all cows are brown? Well, to know with complete certainty, you would have to see every cow. Yeah. And the world's pretty big, and that's not practical, is it? So are you can you can you be pretty pretty convinced after 10 cows or 20 or 100 or 200 how many cows does it take to convince you and of course it, only, it takes only one non-brown cow to disprove so in science we oftentimes say we can disprove ideas but we can't prove them we can never be sure we say that our result if it's consistent with what we expect then it confirms our hypothesis and we have confidence that it may be true now Sometimes we, we call that proof. We prove that all cows are brown. And if you understand the lingo of science, then that's fine. But unfortunately, people tend to uh, think of proof in a more deductive sense where you have absolute certainty. And in science, we never do because always a, a new hypothesis can come along that can better explain the data. So far, so which good? Yes, yeah, so far, so good, which is also, though, somewhat frustrating because you hear the naturalist bring that thought in and come to the conclusion that that's the case in all fields of knowledge. We can't have any truth because they think science reigns supreme. Anyway, maybe we can get there yeah. later on. That's that's a, a thought that I have. Yeah. Oh, man. You're absolutely correct. They, they, uh, if you uh, assume naturalism, and maybe we'll get into it later later on here, but uh, naturalism, the assumption that the natural world is all that exists, 
And so if you're ever going to find truth, the best way to do it is scientifically. But since we can never be certain of anything that we get in science, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? Because you can never be certain. You're trying to find the truth, but you never know when you found the truth. And that's very frustrating. <laughs> it really is. You can understand why people sometimes like to sit around and use deductive reasoning and philosophize about things because they can be sure of what they conclude. Now, their, their premises may be wrong, but if they are right, then they are they're correct and they know they're wrong. So. The real yeah. problem, you know, epistemology. This uh, epistemology is a is a is a tough that's a tough issue. How, the theory of knowledge, how we know what we know, and that's related to ontology, the nature of reality. And we're getting into philosophy. Bam. We're getting into. By the way, you know that we've all what we call science today. We've been calling that less than two hundred years. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they used wow. to call it natural philosophy because they were philosophizing about the natural world. It was in the 1830s, a guy named William Hewell actually suggested we chain, we appropriate the word science and start using it. So it's a very modern idea that way. By the way, you, you did a whole series of papers on, uh, would you call it the history of science? I know that as I read through them, they, were, they really went through the history of science very effectively and where we started, where we are, where we are today, started with what they used to call the natural sciences, and then just in, ended up dropping natural. And that, to me, is a fascinating study because it kind of shows us some of the problems of where we're at today. But yeah, it's a I call it the philosophy of science because when you start talking about science in general, what science is, how we do it, that is the philosophy of science. And people have written many books about this. This is my my modest uh, wading into this pool that, to talk about it. It's a five step, the five. Uh, Five papers put together in the Answers Research Journal. It's on the uh, Answers in Genesis website. So uh, here it is. When I when I do a scholarly type article, they want me to publish in the Answers Research Journal. It's online. It's entirely free. I'll just go there and look at the papers. But yeah. um, that that uh, and you can't really discuss the philosophy of science without doing a bit of the history of science, where it came from, and and how ideas about science and how science has done have changed over the years. So anyway, as part of your experiment, many times they will have a little a couple of subsections dealing with um, dealing with variables, uh, make it mathematical. You'll have what's called an, uh, an independent variable. That's something that is not dependent on something else, something that you can manipulate. Like, for instance, if you're doing electricity, you can change the current going into a circuit. Uh, if you're doing something with plants and testing uh, things about uh, what promotes growth in plants like sunlight and water. We control how much sunlight they get by drawing the curtains down or the shades down or putting a, a, light, a plant light on it. You control how much water it gets. Those are things that you control. So it's called an independent variable. And hopefully it has a relationship to a dependent variable. If you uh, control the amount of light that a plant gets from a lot to none at all, what effect will it have on the plant in terms of plant growth? So the plant growth and development would be, just say, your dependent variable. So not every discussion of experimentation talks about the independent dependent variable. It's sometimes uh, put in there quite a bit. So that's part of that thing. And once you do your experiment, then when you get finished with that, um, then you analyze your data. You look at it, and, and if you've got a hypothesis, you say, uh, for instance, all cows are brown. How many cows I look at? Can I graph this up? Or uh, I believe that if uh, you increase the current uh, through a, a circuit, you will increase the, the potential, something like this. You can test that and look at your data. Or uh, if, I, if I deprive, if I control how much water a plant gives, 
then this will happen. It's development, those kind of things. And you analyze those and plots are great for that to illustrate you know, graphs of, of your results. And in that analysis, you look at it and you ask the question, did, did my experiment confirm or did it, uh, did it contradict my expectation? If it um, if it confirmed it, then you then you can write a conclusion saying, "Aha, my hypothesis turned out, I think, to be correct." Again, I can't say it's absolutely correct because there could be any number of other hypotheses that could explain what we know now, and maybe even better. Uh, and however, if it disproves it, then you got to kind of go back to your starting point and and develop some new approach. And uh, one thing about about doing science is you want to repeat it over and over again and uh, have other people repeat it because. There have been examples where people get one result and nobody else can repeat it, or very few people can, and that's a problem. And also other people say, well, I like your hypothesis, but I'm, I got another experiment you haven't thought of yet, and I'll try that. And if he tries a totally different experiment and gets confirmation again, now we have even more reason to believe our hypothesis may be correct, and then you go on from there. And some people have pointed out in science, we really like to disprove things because that will overturn what we thought we knew and cause a revolution in our thinking. And so science is continually changing. That's a good point to make about science. It's not static. And so then uh, you move on to something else. So you go back and keep testing it. And that basically is a scientific method. You observe a phenomenon, develop a hypothesis, develop an experiment and test it to test it, maybe with a dependent, independent variable, analyze your results and reach a conclusion, maybe write it up and share with the world. Everything's See, why okay. Are you gonna why are you going to mess with that? That sounds so good. I'm like, isn't that exactly what is, we do? And, yes, isn't, isn't that, that isn't that great? Let yes, me ask you I something. Mean, when I asked when I asked you a little bit earlier, I asked you to name some sciences, and one of you named was my favorite, astronomy. Right? Right. How many experiments oh. do we do in astronomy? Okay. Well, we uh, do a lot of observation. No, no. Well, well, I, I said experiments. Ah. <laughs> uh, we don't do any. I've never, I've never as most people, understand, yeah, it's an observational science. As most people understand the term experiment, I have never done an astronomy experiment. Never have. I observe things. Now, some people try to say, well, we can kind of broaden the definition of experiment to include observations. But somebody would say, wait a minute, what was your first step in your process? observe a phenomenon. So why are you observing and then observing again? Some people actually made that argument, believe it or not. I, my attitude is, and in my writing, I try to reflect that, your test of your hypothesis should not only, should not be restricted to just experiments, but should also include observations. And there are examples that I can give you. Um, and and observations, you can reach, I would say in the process really of science is drawing inferences about things. When you develop hypotheses about some of the things I just suggested a few moments ago, you're you're making some inferences about the world. You're making some kind of guesses and insights about things. And one of the best inferences I think a person can make is the phases of the moon. How do the phases of the moon occur? And I always illustrate that when I teach with a styrofoam ball. I'm holding it up right here. This thing's been, I need to really touch it up. It's in pretty bad shape. <laughs> but I, I paint it black on one side, leaving the other side white. And if you have a if you have bright a bright light source, say the sun, it's going to shine. If it's far away, it shines on a ball like this, a sphere. It's going to light up half of it, and the other part would be in darkness. So if my head is the Earth, and let's say the sun is over this direction, 
then the, the moon, if I move it around, is going to be like this. It's going to be the lit part is going to be facing towards the, the sun. Now, it won't show up too well as I'm trying to do this on the screen with you. But if you get a person in, in the middle, which is what I would do with my students, I put the thing here and I have this thing go around my head like this. Like the moon does every month around the around the earth. And I can see how the phases change from a, a thin crescent uh, like that to half lit, which is the first quarter. And then you have a gibbous, a full moon, and then a waning gibbous, third quarter, back to waning crescent, back to new, and it starts all over again. Now, did I do an experiment here? No. Uh, did I have an independent dependent variable? No. What I did do is I, I used a model, if you will, a physical model, in this case, the moon, and I, I show on the Earth here, and the moon clearly goes around the Earth once a month. And so for that relationship, I can see how the phases occur. It's a plausibility thing. It's an inference I draw. And I've been watching the moon in the sky for well over a half century. It's a very robust sort of thing. It actually repeats on that monthly cycle. That, too, I believe is science, but it's no experiment, no nothing like that, and it doesn't fit the scientific method at all. What about causes of eclipses? You know, a solar eclipse occurs. We're going to have one. In, are you going to go to that one in April? I, are you, I'm going down to, uh, to Glen Rose, Texas. To I, I just started advertising it. Going to be there in Texas for the total eclipse. They got a whole bunch of guys going to be there. So, so you, is it your program you're going for, or is it somebody else's? Uh, it's uh, put on by Jim Hoff and uh, and okay. the Creation Evidence Museum down there, and they got a bunch of speakers okay. going to be there. And I'm, I I'm told going... them to get a hold of you. I was like, you need to get Danny Faulkner down yeah. there. But well, I, I'm uh, planning to uh, go up to uh, near Muncie, Indiana, a friend I've had for 40 years, to his farm and watch it. So, uh, oh, nice. weather permitting, we'll see. Have you ever seen a total solar eclipse? So I was at the one in 2017 because it came right over Pensacola. So that was no travel needed right here. Um, no, 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 no. It wasn't total in Pensacola. Uh, are you sure? I am certain of it. You, well, I, you... Why would I ask the astronomer? Okay, so maybe <laughs> I maybe I was outside. I was in, I saw, I guess I didn't get to experience total to, totality then. I might have been just outside the totality zone. Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you You're going to make me pull up a map right now. Uh, okay, you'll see. It misses you quite a bit, actually. Well, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Eric, I've seen two total solar eclipses. And words fail to describe, photographs fail to capture. They were the most remarkable things I have ever experienced. Wow. And you know what? It, it does things to people. You know what it does to me? I could charge admission for this. I shut up. Wow. How much would you pay to see me be quiet for four minutes? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like... I kind of like our interactions. I love well, it, would be, it would be worth, worth seeing because I don't shut up very often. So anyway, it's a uh, uh, it really is an amazing. So you're gonna be you're gonna be blown away. But anyway, what causes so lunar uh, so eclipses? By the way, let me just publicly say it. You're right. I'm wrong. I was outside of totality. Obviously, inside the shadow. Okay. You're, you're gonna you're gonna call me up on the eighth, and you're gonna tell me how right I am. You you are not prepared for what you're gonna experience. Just wow. trust me. It's gonna be wow. It's going to exceed everything that you can imagine. You have to experience it to, to really get it, really. So oh. just just oh. remember, call me up later in the day and let me okay. know. So to get, okay. back, get back to this, what causes a, a solar eclipse? Well, it only happens when the moon is new and it happens to line up what we call the nodes. It's 
pretty clearly we can infer that it's the moon passing between us and the sun so that it blocks out the sun's light, or if you will, the shadow of the moon falls upon the earth. Uh, a lunar eclipse is the other way around. The shadow of the earth falls onto the moon. And I've seen like, almost 20 total lunar eclipses and many other partials over the years. It's a very robust explanation, as it turns out. But again, there's there's no experimentation. There's no independent, no dependent variable. It's an inference drawn from what we can see and logically uh, figure out from what we're seeing. The causes of the seasons. You know, and hang on, we, yeah. we wouldn't call the models that we're doing, like what you, we wouldn't call that an experiment? It's a demonstration. Okay. I'm not experimenting on the moon itself. I'm experimenting right. with something that I'm saying can represent the moon. The moon is okay. doing this, I think, but it's a demonstration. I'm not experimenting with the moon at all. I'm experimenting with a yeah, ball. And if it's right. somehow is similar to what the moon does, then I guess it would be a type of experiment. But I'm not experimenting on the moon. The cause That's of the true. seasons, most people don't get this right. Uh, they know the tilt of the seasons. We tilt toward the summer and away from the sun in the winter. And most people think, well, we tilt toward the sun in the summer, so it must be closer to the sun in the summer. We tilt away in the winter, so it must be farther away. And that's so untrue because it turns out the Earth's orbit around the sun is, is an, not a circle, it's an ellipse. And we're about 3 million miles closer at perihelion than we are at aphelion. And perihelion, I'm going to blow you away again. You know what it is? We're closest to the sun in early January, and we're fathers from the sun in early July. What? Yes. We could talk about this sometime if you'd like, but not for today. Yeah, we're, we're actually closer now. We will be in July and August because we're, we're about 3% closer, 3 million miles, about 91.5 million, million miles as opposed to 94.5 million. It has nothing. See, now you're surprised because you, you, were, you didn't learn properly. Remember I said earlier about so many things are simplified to the point of being wrong. That's one of it, them. Yep, tilt to the earth is, I was all, oh, that's why we have seasons, is tilt to the earth, yeah. and we're, you know, aim toward it, aim away for it from okay, it. Okay, what happens is we're tilted toward the sun rays come in like this to the ground in the summer, noon, but in the winter, they're coming down like this. Same, same beam of light, but it's much spread out of a larger area in winter than it is in the summer, so it's more concentrated heating. I call that the area effect. Plus, the sun is in the sky a lot longer in the summer than it is in the winter, so I call that the time effect. Those two combine to give us our seasons. Now, have I experimented to do that? Have I had an independent, a dependent variable? No. What I've done is I've observed things, and I've done some thinking about it. I can do some demonstrations again, and I and I infer the cause of the seasons from this. I just give you three examples from astronomy where we can reach some reasonable conclusions. But in doing that, most people find it very convincing and probably true. But I didn't use the scientific method right. to do that. And that's my criticism of the fact that, that we're setting people up to think that's the only way to do science. Now, the scientific method is one way to do science, but the dirty little secret is scientists very rarely actually use that. It's a very simplified method, and, if, and and I think it's okay to teach that to, to kids in school, but you, you should also emphasize that this is not the way to do science. It's, it is a, a way to do science, and it's not the way most scientists do their work, and astronomers certainly don't do their work that way. Now, you again understand why I've kind of declared war on the scientific method. By the way, it didn't exist until 1945, 
And it didn't start being teaching in the, taught in the schools until the 1970s. So it came along after I finished my, I was in college and grad school at that point when it came along. We didn't have science, I think, until fourth grade when I was growing up. Now they teach it in first grade. I was visiting with my sister down in South Florida a couple of years ago. She teaches first grade. I was in her classroom and she had a little poster on the, on the bulletin board, the scientific method of those five steps. I thought, oh, no, it's everywhere. <laughs> but it's so wrong because it's so simplified. And that's why I, I'm really passionate about getting the word out to people that we shouldn't be doing this as the way to do science. Okay, so basically, so far, you've taken the word experiment out or the step of experimentation out of the, uh, out of the ability to learn things through observation. Is that kind well, of? Yeah, yeah the, uh, we can do experiments, that's fine. But I think we need to broaden it. Observations is another, and then drawing inferences from those observations. It's reasoning and thinking about, that's the reason why it's called natural philosophy at one time. You're philosophizing about the natural world. And this idea of a cookbook approach. By the way, who's the father of scientific method? Uh, Bacon? Yeah, no. Francis Bacon. You ever read his Bacon, book? Yeah. You ever read his book? Uh, is it Prince? No, that, Prince, that's, uh, that's Newton. This is called uh, uh, Nova Morganum, the new instrument. You know what? Oh, no, he doesn't mention hypotheses in there. Doesn't mention experiments in there. What he was, what he was advocating was uh, an empirical approach to the world, looking at it and drawing inferences from the world. I was quite surprised a few years ago when I picked up a copy of Bacon in translation, of course, from Latin to English, and I was expecting to hear about inductive reasoning. He didn't go through that. He didn't talk about the scientific method. None of that. He was simply arguing for a. Uh, an inferential way of drawing conclusions about the world around us. So I know I only got so, so again. Again, it was, it was incorrect information. They lied to us. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's where I go. Okay. Since you can, can you give me a 60 second overview of where science came from and and wh when were we at our best and where are we at now? Because it, oh, it seems yeah. like we're not. Is it like have we just discovered everything? I kind of grew up thinking. They've already learned it all. Like, what else is there to learn? I mean, look at all those encyclopedias, and I think I'm going to go learn something new. You know, I, that's kind of the the thinking. And I we, we generally trace the history of science back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, for some reason, their culture, they were thinking about the bigger questions that others weren't. The Babylonians had tremendous astronomical records, but they didn't really develop the question about what's behind all of this. But even it was limited. Uh, the uh, the science as we know it really exploded in Northern Europe in the 17th century. It really did. And I'm of the opinion, I'm not the only one, I did, I'm not, not original to me, but actually the science as we know it, the scientific revolution in the 17th century was a product of Protestant Europe. Uh. And uh, that's the reason why England was so so dominant in this in the 1700s. It's all the scientists they had. It was incredible. And I think science may have been its best back then. I, I'm a big fan of the Baroque era. Uh, that's going into the early 18th century, but I think Western civilization peaked 300 years ago in terms of wow. architecture and literature and music and art and science was really catching its ground. Unfortunately, science was hijacked in the 18th century by the so-called enlightenment that yeah. uh, uh, put man in charge. We, we'd had all these great scientific discoveries, not because we were, were trying to think God's thoughts after him, but we our mind's intellect was important. Man was important, and man could figure it all out. And I think ph philosophically, science has been downhill ever since. So I almost see a, I don't know, a, like a, a height there. So I see before the church really stifled science, right? Religion. Um, no, it didn't. But well, oh, it, 
No, it, it really didn't. That's a common misconception. The middle, the dark ages weren't dark at all. Actually, uh, the 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 uh, uh, there was a lot of scientific discussion that happened uh, with with the church, if you will. Now you talk about the Roman Catholic Church. You talk about the Protestant yes. Church. The I'm Roman Catholic about, Church. I, they get a. I was saying the Roman Catholic this. Church kind of controlled. Hey, this. It's almost like today. If if you're a quote scientist. You, you know, you get to determine what's right, what's wrong, and nobody can, it feels like they're trying to say nobody can question it, and it feels like that's what was happening back then, and it felt, to me, I was like, oh, are we kind of creating the same problem, and and we're missing, you know, the height of science where it was? Well, back back in, the, you know, 500 years ago, Middle Ages, if you wanted to do anything, you had to do it within the confines of the church. If you want to be married, you went to the church. If you wanted to... Uh, to be a public official, you had to get a church blessing. If you, uh, all the schools, the few schools that were, were run by the church. The state universities and colleges did not exist, so the uh, the church collectively was kind of the clearinghouse and the authority of what was going on. And what confuses people is we have the Galileo affair, which we don't have time to talk about today. In, in the early 1600s. And uh, very misunderstood. I tell people most of what you think you know about the Galileo Fair is not true. And what had happened is through the influence of, uh, of Thomas Aquinas, uh, who came to embrace Aristotelian thinking and Ptolemaic thinking a few hundred years before, uh, the Roman Catholic Church ended up betting on the wrong horse when it came down to geocentrism and heliocentrism. But there was actually science flourishing under the auspices of the church. Turns out, uh, Copernicus wrote his what he wrote with the blessing of the church. Galileo did, and they withdrew it because he was kind of a jerk about it. So the, the church was not nearly as antagonistic as people think. That 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 myth arose in the late 19th century by Andrew Dixon White and John William Draper. Uh, they were they had a thesis that uh, called the conflict thesis that uh, Christianity had held back. Uh, progress, and they created the Columbus myth, you know, the idea that everybody thought the world was flat and Columbus said otherwise, it proved otherwise. No, everybody knew the world was a sphere at that point. Another one of those lies we learned growing up at school. So, uh, so much got messed up in the past. So that the whole idea of the church holding back progress and, and, religion, and scientific endeavors, that was a lie created in the 19th century. Wow. We got a lot to learn from you, Doc. Hey, social media, I got to let you go. Facebook, YouTube, to our podcast listeners and to our television audience, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Uh, next week, going to have a very, very fun show. I'm looking forward to it. The Woolly Mammoth. We're uh, going to have Dr. Michael Ord on and talk about the mystery of the Woolly Mammoth. What really happened? I got to tell you, already talking to Dr. Ward, I I have some misunderstandings about what happened to the mammoths. So we're, we're just fixing... All kinds of problems here, guys. I'm, I'm looking forward to next week. You can join us live right here. If you want to join the rest of this conversation or be part of what we're doing, and I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to be part of what we're doing, uh, come on over to creationtoday.org slash partner and just partner with us. Help us reach the world with the gospel and with the truth. And you can be part of what we're doing and you can have access to all the rest of this conversation plus every single conversation we've ever had. Dr. Faulkner, this is show number 355. I cannot believe it. I'm excited about everything God has let us uh, do so far and just want to keep spreading the truth and spreading the word. So very, very exciting. Uh, so you guys that are on social media and my television audience and YouTube audience, God bless you guys. I'll see you next week. Before then, go share the truth with someone you know and Check out Danny Faulkner's websites at Answers in Genesis or his pages and his writings at AnswersInGenesis.org. If you're not already signed up for their email list, you need to get on that email list, AnswersInGenesis.org. I'll see you guys next week.